scripture reading this morning is Daniel eleven, thirty-six through 45. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen, with many ships. He shall come, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab in the main part of the Ammonites he shall stretch out his hand against these countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become a ruler of treasures of gold and silver, and of all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow his train. But news from the east and north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury, and destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks for being flexible. Good thinking on your feet. Well, I'm actually grateful to the Lord for the fact that our pastoral search has been more prolonged than we might at first have thought because this is where I wanted to go with this particular sermon series. And so God has seen fit to allow us to be able to wrap up the book of Daniel and to land this thing. And so I am grateful to him for his kindness in what he has done. This morning, we are going to look at a passage that feels like a game of spot the difference. You know, have you ever seen that where you see two pictures? So here's an example for you, all right? And I want you to see if you can spot the difference between these two pictures. Uh, the one on the left, the one on the right, there are seven differences between them. Seven ways in which they are not the same. How you doing? Need some help? Okay. Now I realize they're messing with your brain a little bit here because those are such small differences. But this is actually very similar to what we're encountering in Daniel chapter 11. For example, Daniel 11 verses 21 through 35 that we looked at last week told us about somebody who's a despicable person who was Antiochus, he liked to call himself Antiochus Epiphanes. And now we're looking at a passage where there's a lot of things that are the same, but there are some, some things that are also different in the passage that Daisy read. Previously, we've taken a close look at a Seleucid king who preferred to be known by the title Antiochus Epiphanes. And that's what we saw in the, the verses that we looked at last week. But when we read the prophecy that was just read, 
there are, uh, there are clear connections between what Daniel saw in 536 and what's not yet happened. And that's what we're going to look at. So in the previous chapter, we saw, here's the heart of this guy, Antiochus IV. He's a despicable manipulator. He's working a cunning plan for personal advancement. He uses affirmation and rewards to dissuade others from living in a way that's pleasing to God. He replaces worship of God with worship of himself using an idol as his centerpiece. We saw the history that goes along with this guy. He came into power by kind of usurping the place of his older brother. He was a despicable schemer from the start. Then in verses 25 through 28, we saw his first campaign against Egypt. And in the course of that, he secured Palestine, the land of Israel. So at that point, uh, Israel moved from being controlled by the Ptolemies to the Seleucids. Then we saw in verses 29 through 30, his second campaign against Egypt. And that didn't work out well because Rome sent a fleet that frustrated his plan. So he came back into Palestine mad and he took it out on Israel. But when we read Daniel 11, 46, uh, 36 to 45, at first glance, it seems to present a, a similar, if not the same guy. Uh, this looks like more on Mr. Despicable, Antiochus Epiphanes. But there are some subtle but irrefutable differences. You can spot these differences. And I'm going to show you three classes of them so that you can understand we're not talking about the same person. This is not more content on Antiochus Epiphanes. For example, here's difference number one. Uh, Antiochus was called the ruler of the north, the northern empire, which was the Seleucid dynasty. And he was an heir who represented the north. But the king in Daniel 11, 36 through 45, is actually opposed by the king of the north and by the king of the south. So it can't be the same person. You know, in the earlier passage, the one from last week, he's called the king of the north. Here, he is an enemy of the king of the north and an enemy of the king of the south. So that doesn't make sense. Here's another spot the difference. According to verse 1 of chapter 12, we read this. Now, at that time, so there's no chapters, uh, divisions in the originals. This has been put in in later centuries in order to help us get to the right place. But it says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So what this is telling us is that this king, described in verses 36 to 45 is going to be associated with a time of unprecedented difficulty for God's people prior to the final deliverance and resurrection of Daniel's people. So this is not the same guy. Antiochus Epiphanes is a 167 BC guy. But the resurrection of God's people, that hasn't happened yet. It's coming. And so whoever this guy is, he's a part of that time frame, that future time frame. And then difference number three. In the previous passages, 
and we did this through the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1, we showed you in the first 20 verses 60 points of convergence between history and what was predicted. Here's what Daniel said would happen, and check, here's what happened. 60 times he predicted almost 400 years of history and got it right. And then in the passage we looked at last week, he did another 30. There are 30 points of convergence between the promises or predictions concerning Antiochus and what he actually did. But the material in the passage that Daisy read, we can't make any of those connect the dot convergences. There are no definitive connections between the language in these verses and actual historical events in the time of Antiochus. Therefore, because of this level of precision in the previous verses, meaning there's 90 places where someone said, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. I mean, think about that for a minute. Imagine somebody on the Mayflower 400 years ago actually predicting, okay, here's what's going to happen, and here's what's going to happen, and here's what's going to happen all the way up to the 21st century and getting it right, no mistakes. What that tells us is that Daniel 11, 36 through 45, hasn't happened yet, but it will, just like it says. These are descriptions that await a future fulfillment that will answer perfectly to the specifics in the text. They haven't happened yet, but just as the ones that related to history have happened perfectly, this will too. Now this corroborates Jesus' prediction. Remember we looked at it last week? He said in the Olivet Discourse, this is Matthew 24, he said, something Antiochus did is going to be repeated in the future. It's going to be the same, but there's going to be some differences. Now, much of what is predicted here in this passage, Daniel 11, 36 to 45, is predicted elsewhere in the, in the Bible, uh, notably in the book of Revelation. In fact, in Revelation, we are introduced to a prominent king who is also called the beast, who is the most obvious fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Now listen to this passage uh, when I read it to you. Jerome, who was a 4th century Bible scholar, uh, 4th century AD, actually saw Daniel 11 as a prophecy that concerns this person, the Antichrist. And I say the Antichrist because there are many who oppose Christ, but he is the one, the ego-driven driven king who's going to take on Jesus and lose. He's not made his appearance in history yet, but he will. And from what we learn in Daniel 11, 36 through 45, he will be a profound and real threat to God's people. Now, before I jump into all this, I need to just explain how does prophecy work. I mean, you know, what, what is going on here when you have a prophecy? And I want to show you some things. So as you look into the future, it looks dark. You, you know, you can't, I can't. I'm neither a prophet nor a son of a prophet. I can't tell you what's going to happen in the future. I can guess, but sometimes my guesses are wrong. But what God does is he says, Here's a description of something that is coming. 
And by the way, here's a description of something that's gonna happen after that. And I go, okay. And then as history unfolds, you actually see an event and it's a perfect, I realize this is a little bit cornball looking, but it's the best I had available to me, so live with me, okay? So here's an event that is gonna happen and it lines up perfectly with what was described. And then here comes another one. And that's what Daniel did in chapter 11. He said, first, here's what's gonna happen with Medo-Persia. And then, here's what's gonna happen with Greece, starting with Alexander the Great, which then when he dies, his empire breaks up and he focuses in just on two of the four sections, the north, what are called the north and south, the Ptolemies in the south in Egypt and the Seleucids in the north. And he looks at these, you know, he tells us about this is what's coming and then the history happens and it looks perfect. But sometimes what happens is, here's this despicable person, he becomes a lens and he's a lens through which you can actually look into the future and you can see someone else. In this case, someone who is called monstrous in the passage that we're looking at. He will do monstrous things and he is yet future. So prophecy can predict, here's what's coming, but it can also be a lens in which you can look through it and say, there is going to be a future Antiochus, a future despicable person who will make Antiochus look like someone who's tame by comparison. That's what it's showing us. So what we want to do is let's figure out his heart, uh, his modus operandi. How does he work? What is, what is he about? That's what we'll see in verses 36 through 39, and then we'll look at what he actually does. Now, this is a glimpse of the future. It hadn't happened yet, but it's coming. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things. So there's the monster factor. He will speak monstrous things against the God of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. It says that he will do as he pleases, which that phrase actually showed up earlier in chapter 11 when it described Alexander the Great. So he's going to be like Alexander the Great who... When Alexander basically conquered the then known world, there was nobody stopping him. This king will be like him. Uh, he will also be like Antiochus Epiphanes on steroids. Uh, he will adopt the Eden playbook. Remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? The serpent said to Eve, God knows that if you eat this fruit, you'll become like him. You can be like God. And this future ruler has drunk the Kool-Aid. I am going to take on God and I am going to beat him. It says uh, that which is decreed will be done. God decides I am going to allow this man to have his season. But I will also decide when his time is up. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Antiochus Epiphanes, in 167 BC, was supportive of the Greek pantheon of gods. You know, he was pro-Zeus. He just said, I'm Zeus's man. I'm actually Zeus in the flesh. This king has no place for any god. 
The very notion of a supreme being is a fiction. It says he will show no regard for the desire of women. And that phrase can be interpreted a couple ways. I'm not confident which way it is. It can mean he is not interested in the gods that women prefer, or it could mean he's uninterested in women. He genuinely believes that he is superior to every other so-called God, including the one true God. And this is an unparalleled egotism. He, he genuinely, he, he's not trying to work himself into this place. He genuinely believes. I'm God. But instead he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his father did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He is going to have a, a God It'll be something new, but it will really be a, oh, the God, it says the God of fortresses. That word really just means strength. Uh, it suggests his God is his ability to control others. And he is going to support some sort of control mechanism. And no matter what the cost, he wants to achieve this. Now, I can't help it that in this day and age, where we're talking about chat, GPT, and AI, and all that, I wonder if what he's going to do is create some kind of idol that is simply a mechanism by which he controls what everybody thinks, says, and does. I don't know that that's how it's going to happen. But he is going to create a god for everybody else to worship that is really just an extension of his own ego and will. He will take actions against the strongest of fortresses with the help of this foreign god. By foreign, it means we've never seen anything like this before. It's a new thing. This foreign god of verse 39 is his newly invented control god. And he will effectively overcome any level of resistance. Nothing will block it. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. He's going to take a page from Antiochus's playbook. Remember what Antiochus did? He would rob from some, take from some in order to reward those who were pro him. This guy is going to do the same. He's going to handsomely reward sycophants with honor and position and land. He's got both a carrot and a stick. He cannot be beaten, and he blesses those who are his adoring followers. So oppose him, you will get the stick. Adore him, and he will reward you. This is coming. I don't know when. It certainly feels like we're closer today than we were 40 years ago. Can you imagine living in a world where the king requires all men to worship him as their God? Who declares worship of the one true God as a capital offense and who has the means at his disposal to identify, to isolate, and to confront those who refuse to recant their belief and trust in God. 
That is what's coming. Okay, that's how he thinks. Now let's look at what he actually does. What, what is his campaign going to look like? He's going to be granted the season. What's he going to do? We've looked into his mind and his thinking. Now let's look at his actions. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him. With chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. Again, this is at the end time. Hasn't happened yet. And Monstrous, that's my nickname for him, Monstrous is caught between a northern, much better equipped power and a southern power. So he's in the middle here. And there's a group on the north and a group on the south. The group on the north, by the way, has superior firepower. And yet he is overwhelmingly victorious. He will also enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. And numerous countries will be defeated by him. He will occupy Israel. Some neighbor countries east of the Jordan will be spared. I don't know if that's because he's disinterested. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape. He will advance to the southwest and Egypt will not successfully oppose him. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. He will gain access and exercise control over the hard assets and high value items in Egypt despite high security and stealth storage. Libya and Ethiopia will meet the same fate. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He is gonna be mad. Intelligence reports will support, uh, will help him understand that there's rising resistance from the north and from the east. So go north of Israel and go east of Israel. Then there are going to be kind of rising factions that are saying, we're not, we're not buying it anymore. His ire aroused, he will mobilize a highly motivated force poised to overwhelm the opposition. He's already beaten everybody He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. He will establish a suitable base camp between the Mediterranean and Mediterranean Sea and Jerusalem, so somewhere in that space. But his clock will run out. He will be abandoned and meet his end. This hasn't happened yet. It will happen just as precisely as the things happened in the earlier part of this chapter. Can you imagine living in a world where a king who, de who deems himself worthy to take God's place is in power? Where he is the victor in every battle? 
where people who worship God or serve Jesus have no place, that is the world that is coming. Now you're ready for me to read this passage from Revelation because it's describing the same thing. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon, that's a reference to Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast, this human ruler. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him. This is hard to read. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. The writer of Revelation which is ultimately Jesus, is saying, are you listening? All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Except one group of people are going to see through it. Their name has been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you will drink the Kool-Aid. You will find living in a world where this man has elevated himself to the place of God and has created an idol that is capable of exerting his control upon all men, perfectly normal. If your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life, you hear a klaxon. You hear the warning bell. And he says, listen, if you've got ears, meaning if you have spiritual ears, pay attention. Prepare now to stay strong, to stand true because this is coming. Okay, Jim, how am I supposed to get ready? What, what is it I'm supposed to do to get ready? Do we hunker in the bunker? Uh, do I need to become a, a super prepper? And I'm not disparaging those things, but... Well, the first thing I have to do is address a question that some might have. Some might even call it an objection. Uh, yes, I could answer this when we do the Q&A time, which will happen in four weeks or three weeks. But I thought, well, I might as well deal with it now because I know some of you, this is in your mind. And that would be, Jim, that's all well and good, 
but I am a pre-trib rapture guy and God is going to rescue me and I don't have to worry about that. So don't talk to me about getting ready to stand true for Jesus when things go south because I don't, that's just not going to happen for me. Okay, let's ask that question. <laughs> is that your get out of jail free card? Does it mean that you don't have to develop the kind of faith that perseveres in hard times? Good question. So the passage that some refer to is from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, and it says this, and I'm going to emphasize certain phrases because I want to comment on those as I read it, all right? But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. So here's some new information you need about those who are asleep. The information he's providing is about those who have died so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until, get this, the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord therefore comfort one another with these words now what is Paul describing here and uh, you know I've got about four minutes for this so I can't get into everything although I am happy if you want to talk some more based on what I tell you I'm happy to do that, but let me just highlight three things that are essential for you to understand if you're going to understand the implication of this passage for us in the here and now. First off is that Paul is describing a facet of the coming of the Lord. He's saying, I, I want to tell you something about the coming of the Lord. This is about Jesus' return. Number two, Paul is addressing a concern. Will those who have died in Christ miss out on Jesus' return? No. Jesus is going to bring with him all those who have died in Christ when he returns. Oh, this is so amazing when I contemplate this. You know, I asked Taylor a couple months ago, give me a list of all of those who have gone to be with the Lord over the last year or so, because it seems like there's so many. And there are faces. Some of you see those faces. A loved one, a friend. I see my mom. I see Tommy, my brother, two years younger than me, died at age three. Now picture them fully alive in the clouds waiting and they look so alive because they are Jesus is going to bring them with him you know I brought a little letter that I thought was fun just because it illustrates this Let's see if I can find it down here there it is so I pray for people sometimes I pray for people that I've met once uh, this would be someone that I met mm, 15 years ago. 
I was doing a conference uh, in India, and uh, this was for uh, students, singles. So I was doing a singles conference in India, in Hyderabad. And uh, here's a letter from someone that I got about five years later. Thank you, Uncle, for accepting my friend request after a long time of request. I can never forget you. You are always there in my testimony as one who took part with Jesus to transform my life in a three days conference at, in Hyderabad, India. Uh, I think about five years back, which at the time means I got this letter about mm, 2010, I think. All your words penetrated into our hearts. I can still remember the way you teached us the word of God so smartly by raising few questions and answering them to us and concluded the conference by discipleship. It was all marvelous time. I love you, uncle. I'm, among the Banjar, I'm called uncle. Now I am with a lot of desires to be part like instrument in the hands of Jesus to extend his kingdom on earth. Pray for me and for all my plans in him. I love you so much. Much needed your prayers to me. Thank you. Feeling happy. <laughs> So, every week, I'd like to say every day, but I can't say that, but every week, multiple times, I pray for my friend. I've never seen him since that conference. I don't know if I will die, if he will die before Jesus comes, but I will see him. And I will say, tell me about it. What has God done? Picture the faces of every loved one, every friend who knows Jesus and who has died. Now see them alive and well in the clouds with Jesus. And then imagine them greeting you. He says that we will meet the Lord in the air. And I realize that this passage is often called the rapture based on the word uh, the Latin word rapturo which is based on the Greek word that is caught up but a better expression for this would be the uh, apontesis he says meet the Lord in the air and meet is this word apontesis which is a word that is consistently used in the Greek language for a civic custom, namely a welcome delegation. You know, if you had someone important coming to your village or to your town, you would say, hey, Eponstasis, let's do this. Which meant you would go out and greet him and welcome him. If someone was coming as a conqueror, you would go out and you would meet him and you would say, we're good. When it says we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, the word that it's using is saying that we, the saints, will welcome him when he comes. When Jesus returns, every eye is going to see him. But the world will be in mourning. I'll show you a passage in a minute that says that. They will be crying. But we will join him in the clouds where we will see all those who have died and gone before us in Christ. And we are ready to celebrate the coming of the King to this earth and the beginning of an eternity in his presence. 
And I can't wait for that. I live for that. I know you do too. Now here's what I want you to understand. Nowhere in this passage, nowhere in the rest of Paul's writings, nowhere in the whole New Testament, is there a reference to this event as a basis to ignore the numerous readiness warnings in the Bible. You know, people ask me, Jim, are you a pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, partial trib, and, and get all your terms there together. And what I am uh, is a timely rapture, meaning God is going to bring us to meet him in the air to welcome him to this place on a perfect timetable. It is going to happen. Exactly when, I can't say, but I do know this, that regardless of when it happens, I need to live the kind of life that shouts, I am prepared to die for Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter to me what you do, because I know where I'm going, and I will be in his presence. See him coming. Know you will be there, and prepare to stay true until that moment. Okay, Jim, how do I do that? Good question. Now, last week I told you three ways you can get ready. Uh, these were find ways every day to embrace cost as you follow Jesus. That's about dove chocolate. Uh, number two, spend time, not just about chocolate, but that was the illustration we used. Spend time and energy deepening your relationship with an understanding of God. Spend time with God every day getting to know him better. And number three, when you experience testing, recognize that trial produces purity. We talked about that last week, so get the tape or watch the sermon if you need it. Here are three more. So you can count these as one, two, three as they are in your outline, or these are four, five, and six if we're making an accumulated list. Number four, be a watchman. In Acts 20, verses 26 and 27, Paul says, Therefore I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. You want to know how to get ready for his coming? Don't neglect to say what God says on a matter because you're afraid of what it will cost you. Speak up. Tell people what God says. Don't be afraid. In this passage, Paul is actually referring to something that comes from Ezekiel 33, the watchman principle, in which God said to Ezekiel, I'm calling you as a watchman. What does that mean? That means if you don't sound the alarm, then the death of others is on you. If you sound the alarm and they ignore you, you're innocent. And Paul says, I'm innocent because I've spoken up. We are those who know that the Titanic is going down. Talk to people and tell them your future will not end well on this ship. Speak up. Number two, celebrate name shame. Celebrate name shame. Now, you're probably going, what's name shame? I don't, uh, it's in the Bible. Let me read it to you. Okay. This is Acts 5, verses 40 and 41. I'll read first verse 40 and after calling the apostles in they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them so here the 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 leaders of the early church were the apostles were called in 
They appeared before the religious leaders and the religious leader says, stop talking Jesus. And then they flog them. I've never been flogged. Have you? I can't imagine it, but basically, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. and then released them. What would you do? <laughs> I'd hunker in the bunker. What did they do? Listen to this. Listen to this. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing. <laughs> High five, man! that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They were celebrating name shame. They were saying, I incurred cost. I love it. Jesus thinks I'm worthy of this. They were celebrating when they encountered cost for being a Jesus follower. Number three, number three or number six, if you're making the big list, see him coming. Now, this one actually comes from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. We've talked about it before, but I want you to hear it once again. In Revelation 1-7, the author quotes Daniel 7-13. He actually says, something Daniel told you about? He says, behold, see this. Get it fixed in your eye. You've got to focus on this. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. You want to know how to stay true? See the finish line. See him coming in the clouds. And at the right moment, he will call me and he will call you and we will go into his presence where we will be united with all those who've known the name of Jesus who now sleep. When Jesus returns, when he comes back, the entire world is going to see it. It's going to be like lightning arcing through the sky. You can't not see it. It will be obvious to everyone what is happening. For the majority, this will be a complete surprise. This is not how they thought their story would end. And they will mourn. But we will celebrate. Jesus has come back. There are two types of people in the world. The clueless. When Jesus returns, every eye will see him and the clueless will mourn. And then there are the fearless. They have stayed true in their allegiance to Jesus and have been eagerly awaiting his return, and they will rejoice. Which are you? The clueless are those who have not surrendered to Jesus Christ. We can fix that. Come talk to me after the service and I'll help you. If you are the fearless, understand this. We have been left on this planet. Jesus has not returned because he wants us 
to speak up and let the clueless know it's not going to end well if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Which are you? Which do you want to be? If your heart swells at the prospect of declaring, I follow Jesus, then you're ready to sing this song.